This episode of the Arbitration Station podcast is brought to you by MB Kemp LLP. MB Kemp is a nimble, adaptable, and current international law practice with strong east-west links based in London, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Hong Kong. For more information, visit www.kempllp.com or visit us on LinkedIn at Kemp LLP. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick. And I'm Sadia Bhatti. And I'm Joel Dahlquist. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance, and 33% general pondings and musings of the arbitration world. And 1% future leaders. What? (laughs) You are both future leaders, guy. I guess it's like 66% future leaders because I'm not a future leader, but you both are, I saw. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So many false things said about you and your brilliance, Brian. I can't remember <laughs> what it was. I just remember reading. Oh, that's not that's not accurate. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I I didn't even. It's there, we get so many emails. I, it's like when is it coming out? Is it out? Is it published? I I, I get very confused. But it, I guess it's officially out. And yeah, it's officially out. I. Uh... I decided to put the quote a quote from my uh, from my daughter uh, in the rankings. In they their, accept it, those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, at least in my on my own personal publication page, I was saying that I was uh, a future leader. You know, she makes good there. cookies. <laughs> yeah, it was just kind of like that. So I just put that here. Uh, we should actually talk about this on a happy fun time topic about um, the rankings, but. Um, it is sure we have at some point. It's, I it find it like something. Yeah, I find it very like to to approach clients and you have them be contacted and do it on your behalf um, outside of the context of your representation. It seems I find it very uncomfortable sometimes um, to to ask them to do that. And although it is anonymous to you, I guess they don't report it back to you, but. Um, you, you kind of take yourself out of the representation ta- representation context. Be like, this is actually great for me. Can you do me a favor? <laughs> it's like great. doing annual reviews at work. Like it's not actual work, but you still have to say things about yourself or have people yeah. review you. Ugh, it's uh, it's uncomfortable. Also, like it's, it's mortifying, right? To just have to send them an email and be like, hey, can you can you respond to that? Obviously, they have other things to do. Yeah, and it's not just your clients. The WWL stuff is like your peers. Mm. So you receive emails from like 15 or whatever, hundred people you need to recommend them. And then they recognize this is a good happy fun time. Do you need to recommend them though? When you get requests from peers, which peers do you actually recommend? And in what way or all of them or how? Yeah, we can. What's your slip in that? Yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah. pause this. <laughs> yes, exactly. And let me instead ask you, Brian, where in the world are you? Oh, I am in London at home working preparing for my next day of trial it's not a hearing it's a trial in the dfc um yeah so I'll, i'm cooped up all weekend that's what i'm doing where in the world are you sadia i'm in london 
but going to Paris normally, if I can get a PCR test done in time. <laughs> oh yeah, it's changed just now, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And also because of the variant,、um, we、um, so I work a lot with Africa, and we had some clients coming in from Africa, so that was a whole stress. But it should work out fine. So in London for now. And you, Joel, where are you? Same here in London. Going to New York, hopefully in a few days. So the next episode, fingers crossed, the knock on wood, etc. I will be in New York, but it's the same. They also recently changed, so you have to test yourself like five minutes before you board the plane. It's going to be a bit stressful when we go next week, but hopefully, hopefully next time I'll be in New York. Yeah, I mean we can never really count on it, can we? It's always <laughs> you never know until the day before if you're actually going to go on vacation. But here we are. The reality. So, what have you guys been up to? Any news? Any gossip? Well, Sadia, you had some gossip. Do I have some gossip? I have some gossip coming out、uh, from the European Commission. Have you heard about that gossip? I actually <laughs> haven't. So let me know. Well, the Commission has announced that it will open infringement proceedings against a list of European countries that I will refer to now: Austria, Sweden, Belgium, Luxembourg. Portugal, Romania, and Italy for failing to effectively remove from their legal orders the intra-EU BITs to which they are contracting. What else is new? Sweden is always almost <laughs> undergoing infringement proceedings. The Commission is <laughs> this all the time. Is it Romania always also always almost? I think in this this is maybe me speculating, but I think the reason and when it comes to this at least that Sweden and Romania are both. Being threatened is the Sweden Romania BIT,、mm. which I think、mm-hmm. has been terminated. But there's something about the sunset clause. There's a 20-year sunset clause in that treaty, which、mm-hmm. means, of course, that for all intents and purposes, the treaty will still be there for another 20 years. Which I don't think the Commission appreciates. That's not how it is intended to work. So I think that might be the explanation. Also, the Commission says it notes that Austria and Sweden did not sign the plurilateral agreement with other member states and have not finalized the bilateral termination of the.、Uh, meanwhile, Belgium, Luxembourg, Portugal, Romania, and Italy have signed the plurilateral agreement in May 2020, but have not yet completed its ratification process.、Mm, this is public international law 101. <laughs> exactly, like <laughs> not enough to sign. <laughs> exactly. So, first of all. Um, if you don't sign, I'm still going to criticize you for not signing it.、Mm-hmm. If you have signed and not ratified it, then that's also not right. I mean, anyways. So yeah, still a lot of European drama going on to respond to your gossip question. But it, and it's so it's aggressive, and it's like you haven't you haven't done this now, okay? Infringements proceedings, like there's really no、um, you know buffer for these <laughs> states to really comply. I think this is that, though. Maybe that's the way I read it. But this is not. We are now launching proceedings. This is like a warning shot. This is the buffer. Okay. Yeah. Like we、mm-hmm. we will、uh, launch proceedings or bring you before the court of justice if you do not promptly fix this.、Mm-hmm. Did、yeah. you say that the UK has terminated its? Yeah. So I was. We were just having a chat offline about this and、um, the infringement for infringements. There was a threat. 
to launch infringement proceedings against the UK, as well as you guys might remember. And there was a whole question as to why is that so now that the UK is not part of the European Union, <laughs> uh, which is a fair question, I suppose, without going too much detail into this, because this could be a whole segment on its own. But interestingly, I saw on the website, the official UK Treaties Online Database website, um, that a few of the BITs that were concluded between the UK and European countries have been terminated, uh, namely five in the past year alone. Hmm. The UK Poland BIT, the UK Malta BIT, the UK Romania BIT, the UK Slovakia BIT, and the UK the UK Czech Republic BIT and the UK Lithuania BIT. I think the Poland one happened a long time ago, actually. Yeah. I mean, long time ago, meaning 2019, which for us <laughs> is a long time ago. But the rest of them um, occurred recently. So I understand, although I haven't checked this morning, this is information that dates from a couple of weeks ago, but that there are six remaining BITs. But with Hungary, Latvia, Estonia, Bulgaria, Slovenia, and Croatia. Let's mm. see what happens with respect to those. So, you know, long story short, the UK is terminating its BITs. <laughs> Unprompted and unthreatened. No, it was threatened. It was threatened. By but the, before. Yes, but even, you know, there is an argument to be made as to even if you have left the in- union, those BITs should have never been in any, because they were always illegal, right? So mm-hmm. they can't create rights for that period before uh, when the EU. And we also don't know, of course, the, the circumstances. It may have been that the EU member states in question were the ones initiating the sort of bilateral terminations rather than the UK doing it. Mm. So I don't have more details on that front, Joel, but interestingly, it says there's a termination agreement that was signed between the both states. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, so I think they must uh, have do that. Agree. No, because you can, you can denounce a treaty. You can yeah, but then you were back in the it. sunset class problem. Well, yeah. Right, of yeah, course, yeah. of course, of course, of course. So, yeah, that's it for your European gossip, uh, Brian. <laughs> Wait, but I, I still have one more question. If there is infringement proceedings based on actions or like, you know, doing something unlawful while you've been a member state and you've now ceased to be a member state, can they still initiate infringement proceedings against you? I think we talked about this at some point. I can't remember with whom or if it was just the three of us. They, they, they could probably... But what is the end? Like what they can't really enforce anything at the end of it, because whatever the court says ultimately cannot be uh, enforced against the yeah. UK. So it's it's kind of an empty threat, I think. Oh, this is not. Uh, let's this move is... to something that where we're all more comfortable. Which is <laughs> what we're talking about today. Where are things like, we have? Where's prepared? Veronica when we need her? Okay. I know exactly. There's a, <laughs> it's a complex situation. What do we have today, Joel? We have kind of a unified theme, kind of, actually. One of the rare examples when our segments align, at least somewhat. I will first talk about the ICA Task Force on Standards of Practice in International Arbitration, which I think of as the civility guidelines, the, the recently published guidelines from ICA about how all participants in an arbitral proceedings ought to behave and we'll get back to that in a little while. But then there's also an interview. And I think I've never been this bummed out from missing an interview because I couldn't squeeze it in my schedule with all the busy people. So you two instead had the pleasure 
of talking to a favorite and a loyal podcast listener of ours, right? Yes. yes. Sadi, do you want to introduce him? Beju Vasani. I think he's one of our favorites. Um, I think everybody knows him. But he doesn't need an introduction, but you know, but still, uh, he's a he's a partner. He's been a partner um, in international arbitration for the longest time. He was at Jones Day, and now he's a partner at uh, Ivanian and Partners, uh, and uh, he's based in London. And he's also known as, um, I think, Miss like the Buddha, or I don't know how to refer to him. Like uh, Guru, Guru. He said the Ted Lasso of international arbitration. He's been posting these really insightful and um, very, very good thoughts on LinkedIn on, on what to do, what not to do. So we were discussing about that uh, mentoring series, he calls them. Yeah. Yeah. It's revealing and comforting and all of that. And it's like a warm hug from a partner that you've been desperate to get for the past decade. <laughs> exactly. He's like the dad, everybody or like the good friend everybody wants to have, you know? So, yeah. You're like humanity yeah. question mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's two segments on how to behave in the world of arbitration. And then we have a happy fun time on how to not behave. How to right? not behave in international art or how people behave or how the reality it, their reality is, a reality check. And we're gonna talk about a practice known as gorilla. I expect a rant from me this episode, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> ah, perfect. We let, let's go. There's no reason waiting around. Hey, Beiju, it's so good to see you here and to have you on the Arbitration Podcast. Uh, we were just uh, saying how much we wanted to have you for a long time for multiple reasons. But recently, your name has been popping up on our, our feeds, and I think everyone's feeds in Arbitration, with what you call the mentoring series. So you're like our mentoring mentor person for everybody i saw even somebody said you were the ted lasso of arbitration <laughs> that's, my, that's my former partner chuck uh, uh, I, I haven't seen ted lasso so i don't know whether to take that as a compliment or insult I, i'm gonna take it as a compliment for now <laughs> definitely a compliment definitely a compliment yeah but, so, but th thank you for listen thank you for having me on i i i love your podcast by the way i when, when people call into to talk shows, they, they always say, and I'm, I'm the same way, I'm a long-time listener, I guess, first-time participant. So uh, <laughs> congratulations for the podcast. I think it's awesome, and, and I'm, I'm really thrilled to be on. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. So maybe the first question we had for you is, what started, um, you know, what gave you the will to start those, those mentoring series? And for those... Very few people, I think, who do not know what I'm talking about, they can they can see that on your you started doing this on your LinkedIn account, right? Um, and you're starting you're posting what every week or so. I think it comes out. I try to do once a week. Um, it's, I think I'm I'm too behind if I were to get to 52 the final week. So I may have to have some double weeks <laughs> towards the end of the year. Um, <laughs> But but to answer your question, Sadia, um, I you know it started. If you think if you put ourselves back to December 2020, sort of in the depths of the pandemic, certainly that was in in the UK a second lockdown. I I had just come back from Moscow, um, and we were literally sitting on New Year's Eve, and I was thinking, you know, what what are, what are going to be 
my resolutions for the year because I've given up on trying to lose weight and 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 do go to the gym and things like that. <laughs> so, um, I, I I and I happened to be on LinkedIn and one uh, uh, lady had said she had posted every day for a year, right? One thing every day, and how much she had enjoyed it. She had been nervous about it, um, and but now she had so many more people she had engaged and she felt great. And I thought to myself, look, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, we are reaching out to each other more and more through social media or, or at least online as opposed to in person. And of course, at that time, we didn't know whether there would be further in person. Um, why don't I start doing something uh, online? And LinkedIn seemed like a perfectly reasonable place to start. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've been fortunate in that um, I've, I've had quite a few sort of life experiences uh, in arbitration, I guess, or as a lawyer from the UK, the US, now Russia. Uh, I've been a barrister, a solicitor, US lawyer. I've, I've done degrees here. I've done degrees in the US. <laughs> so, in other words, I felt I had a sufficient um, breadth of, of experience to say things that were interesting. Now, I guess the, the, the hardest one I have to say were the first few um to just stick stuff out there and you know who knows mm-hmm. people are going to say why are you telling us this stuff you know or <laughs> if there was a, yeah. if there was a dislike button people yeah. press it but i said let's go for it and and i've been very grateful and very fortunate that that people are interested in what i have to say the only the only thing now is i'm coming up to 40 whatever it's 43 42 42 yeah 42 thank you is <laughs> working out what more there is to say because <laughs> because I, I i you know i'm sure it's some stage I run dry and war people will will stop being interesting what I have to say but as long as it's as long as it's going and as long as I'm 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 making even a small difference in in someone's life to say well look I've been through this what you're going through or this resonates with you then I'll, I'll I'm happy to keep doing it Oh, I think it definitely resonates with every kind. I, I see the people who are interacting with your posts and it's it, 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 what is striking is you have juniors, trainees, and you have much more, you know, seasoned practitioner, if I can call them that, because you can't say old folks. It's not acceptable <laughs> no, to I, say I, that. That would be also me. So I'd, I'd rather, <laughs> I'd, I'd rather not say that. Very, very quickly, I, since this is a little bit informal, it, it's happened now to me for the first time. I, I, as I said in my last post, we went to Doha for vacation and the, the Pakistani driver uh, of the cab who, who dropped us off, uh, he right. took, we took the kids out and then I couldn't open my door and he said, nay, nay, uncle, like this. And he was calling me uncle. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, have I graduated to a different <laughs> level. It's, I think it's time to get the hair done. So, yes, please don't call me uh, senior practitioner. Call me, uh, I would say, mid-level. Mid-level practitioner, mid-level. yeah. Level. No, but it's it's really, I mean, and Beju, you've posted on so many topics, so it's hard to pinpoint on one specifically that I would like you to develop. So maybe I'm going to give you a choice out of the 42. Or I have one in case you get stumped. <laughs> well, maybe we can start with Brian. Brian's suggestion, yeah. and we can also give you the opportunity, Beju, to talk about an, a one that you are particularly you know, interested in and you want to, you want to talk about. Be, uh, Brian, go ahead. Okay. The one that I've, that I read recently that I, that really resonated with me because I'm in the midst of it now is civility, your post on civility, which was where have we lost sight of being too, you know, 
professionals across the table from each other instead of complete, you know, two different battalions that are trying to completely slaughter each other at the cost and the expense of your client. And I, I wonder if there was an, an, a specific instance that obviously you're not going to name the instance, but a specific instance that motivated that post or is this something you've seen all the time or something that you've seen taught to juniors or how did that really um, come, come to light? Yeah, so I think that came about twofold. One, something long-standing and one immediate. The long-standing is just seeing how, um, having done this for nearly 20 years, I've seen the movement of uh, the tone and style of submissions. I mean, we used to put, we used to do jurisdictional submissions in 50 pages. You know, we used to do, and if, even if there was jurisdictional submissions, you know, at the mm -hmm. time, we, we'd... Um, just seeing that the length, the style, it has morphed over time and, it, and it, it's not good. Um, and no one has really got to grips with that where briefs are getting longer and longer. Um, and, and it's really, I think, a question of the use of terminology. You know, I, I always see the same words, bad faith, uh, egregious. You know, these are serious words, you know, and you can't just throw them around like confetti um, but unfortunately, they're almost becoming common parlance in the manner in which um, lawyers are interacting with each other. Whereas, uh, I hate to say this, back in the day, God, back in my day. Um, <laughs> back in your back day. Back in my day. Um, you know, it was, it was very much, you know, you, you take an appropriate line because you, you separated the lawyers from the clients mm -hmm. and you understood <clears throat> that the lawyers were just doing their job. Um, now, I guess where I, somewhere where, where I, I don't love um, how the line has been crossed is, is that almost the lawyers are, are commingled with the client. Um, so, so, so I said the longstanding one is, is how things have morphed over time uh, for the worse. But the immediate one is, so I, whenever I come off a case, whether it's because there's an award or, you know, we're, we're no longer representing the client or whatever it is, I send an email to my opposing counsel and I say, listen, you know, online virtual handshake for you, right? And, um, you know, no hard feelings and, I, you know, and, and it was good and I'm sure we can grab a beer or, or a coffee sometime and, and, you know, and get to know each other better in a different context, right? 99% of the time, um, I'll get a nice email back saying, absolutely, Beiju, great, you know, great getting to know you, good job, and good luck for the future. And that's it, you know, and, and I've actually, some of my best friendships in arbitration are my opposing counsel. Um, unfortunately, what triggered this was I sent an email to, uh, to uh, people, obviously, who remain nameless, who, uh, who didn't respond at all. Uh, and I've had that one other time in my career to other, someone else who won't who will remain nameless. And these are these are pretty, um, you know, these are these are names, household names. And look, each to their own, right? Mm -hmm. But obviously, they had took, taken umbrage to me um, rather than seeing that I'm representing my client. And and uh, you know, and and I've got no hard feelings. And but you know, so I I kind of it was a bit of a a plea back to civility, as you said, Brian, which is, you know, let, let's not lose sight of the fact that um, clients ultimately pay for, for the, the incivility 
because it takes time and effort to be uncivil. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you, you're writing extra stuff that doesn't need to be there. And 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 as I sit as arbitrator, you know, one also thinks sometimes as counsel, well, if I if I catch them out on doing something or saying something and, and I create a fuss, then the arbitrators will notice and they'll they'll also be upset like me. And actually as arbitrators, you're not. Um, you know, that that incivility rather than seen as, well, yes, absolutely. And, you know, you should take a strong position. I mean, in rare instances, it's it's warranted. But generally speaking, as an arbitrator, you know, I'm like, come on, guys, you know, pack it in. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I'm trying to just, I'm not trying to resolve the merit. Can we get back to the merits of the dispute rather than this 50th letter writing campaign on some procedural skirmish that really is leading us nowhere mm-hmm. and time and money and that's really your position as the arbitrator and, and i have to say i'm starting to get um and i think i had said that on the yeah on the post i, I i'm quite strict as an arbitrator and i try to say look I, I i'm not having it and actually i say no letters unless i say there can be a letter right so these these well, you know what i mean right you Absolutely. write a letter on a monday and by you know in an hour there's a response back you know oh my god now i have to respond back then they respond back yeah it's 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 all of that stuff and i think arbitrators taking a stricter line and lawyers getting back to the roots of civility which will get us back to i think where we need to be which is doing things in the client's interest yeah because it's not necessarily in the client interest right when you do that because you're going to fight for your client necessarily but it's a lot of money to write those letters and it's distracting right that's the thing it distracts you from the core issues but it's interesting what you're saying because I had a conversation just yesterday with a colleague and he was telling me how hard it is to be a lawyer in the disputes world because it's uh, psychologically speaking because we're always dealing with disputes it's not like it's like we're divorce lawyers <laughs> in a way. you're about to write a letter you have to roll up your arms I'm about to get really angry right now. Yeah, it's, it's so, so, exactly. And so it's kind of like throwing those punches and, you know, being that, um, that, that, you know, dog, guard dog for your, uh, for your client. And, 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 um, and so that's, that's a tough one, right? Because we are supposed to fight. Right. We're supposed to be in a dispute. But, but where, where I would see the difference, Sadia, is <clears throat> you, you can, the best way you can throw punches and kicks is by getting to what's relevant and material to the outcome of the dispute, right? Mm-hmm. Taking a methodical, logical approach through the facts and the law, taking the tribunal from A to B, showing them how we win mm-hmm. the case. Where I don't think you do your client a service, despite the fact that it may look good to your client and maybe to your, your colleagues, right, is all the aggressive words, the aggressive languages on procedural skirmishes. You, know, you, mm-hmm. you, can, win, you can win 100 procedural issues and lose the case. Right. So it, unless it gets you to the end game, right, in a, in a chess m- methodology to say, unless it gets me to checkmate, you know, mm-hmm. what's the point? Um, so in a way, I, th- I think we, sometimes we, 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 we take our eyes off the prize um, as dispute lawyers. As you said, because we're, we're always rolling up our sleeves and ready to fight, we sometimes, you know, it's the forest trees issue. But I think ultimately... Um, the key is that you have to know when to fight and when to be civil. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've lost track of. Sometimes absolutely go for it, you know, because the other side have done something truly egregious and jump and jump on it. But if you jump on it 50 times, then the one time it really is egregious, like the cry yeah. wolf, 
right. could be on like, oh, another time. And, yeah. and, that, and I think if, if you can discern when to do it and when not to do it, you'll be a much better counsel. I just, if we zoom out from this specific topic, and then I, I'm sure Saudia will guide you to zoom into a new one, but um, about, I think there's parallels with this podcast as well, because with this podcast, we are asking people to speak a bit more freely, not worry about being wrong, uh, to discuss complex, potentially complex substantive and procedural issues in a conversational way and with jokes and, you know, a bit more relaxed. And I think there has been the reaction we've had to the podcast is I think a very similar reaction you've had to your mentoring series, which is this thirst to like take your jacket off and relax a bit and talk about what's actually happening. And I think um, and that's what I've heard from reactions to your posts as well, is that it's just like, thank God it's an, an insider who's allowing us to speak on this and who's, who's giving us basically permission to say, FaceTime in front of my computer is not acceptable. <laughs> you know, these, these are, and for someone who would probably be enforcing that role is now saying, you know what, we need to readjust. Yeah, having, look, Brian, having been in big law for nearly 20 years, and I came out of it, um, and, and I wanted to do things differently, because I think I, big law, and maybe lawyers in general, um, there's such a focus on, on the system. The system is hourly billing, right? Um, institutional clients. And what that means is that each lawyer is almost fungible. And in other words, they don't have to even have a name. Um, and you can say lawyer A, lawyer B, lawyer C, lawyer D. And this is how much we pay them. And this is how much they generate per hour, right? And, you know, and, 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 and I think that methodology um, hurts the human side of work, right? We're, we're in, in other words, you know, and I, and I hate to put it in these terms, but but we we by working by the hour as we do, we're selling our time, but we are laborers as such, right? Because we're 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 clocked by the hour, um, and I think it, it somewhat cheapens um, our our output and our intellect. And so what I'd, what I'd love to see is, is law firms focus less on how many hours you bill as a, uh, as a, as a measure of your productivity mm-hmm. and something. And, and the answer then is what is that? And, and I accept that that's not easy, but something that then gets us to a point where um, it, it's more about your quality your input, um, your abilities, what you bring to the firm, other than simply hours. Um, and so certainly I think um, where I see law firms continuing to make the same mistakes, and the biggest mistake they make, of course, is to think that the way to bring in lawyers, retain them, and uh, bring them in and retain them is throw more money. Right. And mm-hmm. I, I tell you what, there, there, every associate, uh, not every, right. There are some who, who love the, the, the work and the pressure and the stress, but most associates I would speak to would be happy to work less and be paid less. Right. In other words, who needs, right. Hundreds and at a certain point, you get to the point where, what are you going to do with the more money? Right. It's great, but actually I'd rather spend time with my parents or I'd rather spend time with my friends wow. or, God forbid, I'd rather spend time with my kids, um, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and, and you think to yourself, yeah, but is it, you know, what? and what am I getting in return apart from cash? 
And unfortunately, the law firm model is cash-based. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way I'm doing it, and, and look, I may be wrong, and, and it may implode, and it may not work. But the way I'm doing it is to see it more in terms of people will stay because they're invested in the cases, because they're growing as people and as lawyers, because it's fun, right? Because, and, and, and they're growing and, and, and they're being valued. Um, and, I, and I don't think that's too much to ask. Now, I understand in a huge organization, partners would say, well, how, how we, can't, we can't individualize the, uh, the way we look at associates. We have to make it into some sort of um, Excel spreadsheet, <laughs> right? To say this lawyer, this lawyer, this lawyer, and this is how we measure it. And then it, it gets done because we have... 5,000 lawyers, you know, total, but, but we have, let's say, 2,000 associates, 3,000 associates. We can't individualize it. But I think that's unfortunate. Um, but so- the measurement itself is corrupt. The, the measurement of one billable hour is so different between two different people and how much they're going to spend on a product. Some people are very cost conscious and well, I'm going to make my, give my client a great product in a, in a least amount of time because this is a funded case. And, and other people are like, my job's on the line. I'm going to spend 10 hours researching. Absolutely. And, and I'll tell you what I've seen. I didn't put this in the, in the uh, series, but I'll tell you, I've seen, and I would say it's two methodologies, Brian, and, and it really does exist. One is we hire in um, as many decent people, resume decent people as we can, and then the cream, what they consider the cream, will rise to the top, Right survival of the fittest right and I, I i had one law firm i was at where each lawyer could look at the billable hours of every other lawyer okay so i could i can Ooh. see your face <laughs> oh, on terrible the, on the audio yeah. but but your faces you yeah know, i could look at so i was a, i was an associate and you could look at the hours of your fellow associate and and it was without doubt on purpose mm-hmm. and the purpose was that you would look and make sure you're not at the bottom all right or, or for many of us including me at the time at the top yeah. yeah um and it would incentivize us almost like a like a point system on a credit card or a hotel network or airline to, to gather right. your points right and be at the top of the tree um and that was a survival of the fittest and i understand because that is easier than cherry picking very carefully the right associate for you and taking the time to develop that associate individually. Mm. Um, and they may leave. It may not work out. There may be personal circumstances and it's expensive to do that. And it's difficult to do that. And it takes uh, manpower, woman power to oversee that easier, hire a bunch of people, let them compete against each other. And let's see who's the right. Who's the one who's sticking it out the longest. Mm-hmm. And, and I agree with you that for me, that is a corrupt system. It goes hand in hand with the hourly system. Um, but, but yet it has persisted, right? I, I can show you articles from 20 years ago that said the hourly billable rate <laughs> and it's not. And I'm sure from 20 years from now, it won't be dead. Mm. Um, so the, I think really the question is, um, you know, the only thing it will take, the only thing it will change, I think, is a generational change. Um, and, and, and I'll tell you one thing that did, did strike me from one of, my, uh, one of my posts was the amount of senior lawyers. It was the power of no. I called it the power of no, 
where I said, stop being a people pleaser and say no. When you've got too much work, when you've got too much stuff, when you can't handle it, just say no, right? And, and be very clear up front, don't take it on. And I got private messages plus messages on the post saying, oh, you don't need to worry about this new generation page. They know perfectly. In fact, they don't know how to say yes, right? As if, right? Like a work-life balance, yeah. Yeah, work-life balance, yeah. All they care about is, you know, going to their yoga and going to to pet their dog and going out for their fancy food. Do like my cat. Yeah. (laughs) These are the kind of messages I got. And, and it struck me that actually there, I think there's a disconnect between generations here where my generation, you know, we grew up with Gordon Gecko and the 1980s and Thatcher and Reagan and greed is good. And, and right. to be honest, it was so the yuppie, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. drove for material gain. That was a sign of success. And I, I still have that in my blood. It's, I have to rid myself of that poison daily. To say no, look, Beijing, you, you know, you don't want that at a certain point. But the generations below me, um, wow, they, they have a much better grasp of what matters. And I, I have to say, I think the pandemic has yeah. really brought home the fact that the fungibility of the job, money, you know, there are people dying and, and family members and people being sick and you can't see, you can't do things that you think like going traveling and seeing your parents and seeing your brother. I haven't seen my brother in three years and mm-hmm. you know, I don't care about the money rather than seeing my brother, you know, and it kind of brought home to all of us the fact that there is more to life than work. Um, and I think, I think there's going to be a generational change at some stage. When, as Sadia says, the old folk <laughs> are, are out, <laughs> uh, have left the coop. Um, and I think- Can I take you to one thing you just said, which was success? And I think you had another post on that. And that is also connected to the pandemic because I saw a lot of senior partners being asked to leave because the rent of the office was too expensive to pay them and they weren't bringing enough, no- enough business. And all these, you know, junior lawyers and the next generation, it's what the definition of success and, and we're all to blame. I mean, I myself thought the same. It's path to partnership, path to partnership, path to partnership. And then you see what you left, you left the veil and you're like, wait, you have to pay capital contributions and, <laughs> and every year you're going to evaluate. And after two years, I could get fired anyway. What, what am I killing myself for? Right. The, right. I'll tell you what making, I, I always say the making partner is when I was the poorest, hmm. right? Not the richest. I, I made partner, and I'll tell you what happened. First of all, you go from self, uh, sorry, uh, employed to self-employed, right. which has its own downsides, which is that you get this huge amount of money initially, right, in your bank account, except mm-hmm. the fact that most of it's tax. If you go shopping with that money, uh, you're in trouble. Um, second of all, absolutely capital contributions, right? So a bunch of money has to go, which for which you normally borrow money from the firm or from right. the underwritten by the firm. Um, then you only have a small amount that is usually fixed per, per month, right? Which is your sort of, uh, I can't remember if it's distribution or draw. I think that's draw uh, monthly. Then you'll get a distribution, but your distribution can be one year uh, uh, behind, right? So almost you're getting paid for last year's work. So there was a time as a partner 
uh, that I was absolutely in debt. I was really in debt because I was paying more tax than I was okay. earning in actual cash in hand. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was the hardest period. Now, it got better. Don't get me wrong. Right. And then it gets a lot better when, when you get into the equity and so on. But the first few years were really tough. And I have to say, I did think about it. And, 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 and my success post, um, it did well in, in terms of views and, and, and uh, engagement. And, and, and I'm not surprised because for me, again, as a child of the 80s, but also with, with uh, and Sadia, you will appreciate this, as sort of South Asian parents. Um, you know, we, we, we would, my parents would say, look, you, you need to be a professional, you need to make money, you know, and, yeah. and it's sort of material and type. And, oh, th- this person is a, is a doctor and this person is a lawyer and this person has, has a big house in St. John's Wood and this person has an <laughs> yeah. amazing flat in, in overlooking Central Park. Why so, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So we worked so hard for you, yeah. Beijing. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 you know, I used to right? wear sandals when I used to go yeah, to school. Yeah, that's right. That's what my dad was like, oh, in the <laughs> my mum was like, I had to walk across horrible places to go to school. And now look at you. And, you know, we, you know, in this country, you have, you know, all this stuff, you know. And, and you grew up with this idea that success is material success. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and I guess what the point was that, that every time I got something, uh, two things happened. One, I was super happy immediately, right? The short term when I made part, I remember when I made partner, we went, we went for drinks. And I was so happy. And then of course this happened. I went into debt and I thought, what's the point of this? Um, or, you know, anything when I got my first arbitrator appointment, Wow, I got my first arbitrator appointment. And then it's like, okay, but you know, what's next? Then I got my first exit arbitrator appointment. And I was like, wow, I got my first exit arbitrator. And then I'm like, what next? And I realized that it's always going to be what's next. Mm. Um, And instead of instead of enjoying the fact that actually I've got a pretty decent career, great family, you know, and you know, I don't need to worry about things that ordinary, you know, everyday families have to worry about. And I'm so lucky, right? Particularly in the pandemic, right? I don't have to worry about where my next paycheck is coming from. I don't have to worry about feeding my kids and things like that. I was worrying about things like what's my title, right? How much, you know, how much money I'm going to get, what's this and that. And I realized that that, that measure of what is success, what is a happy life was just really wrong. And and it's but it's I I can't I, I can't tell you how hard it is and I'm struggling with it still to let that go, you know to 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 say you know what if I don't get that it's okay, you know or if I if I'm not in GAR front page it's fine mm-hmm. if, I, if 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 I if I look at my my peers and they're doing super well and they're you know I don't know getting super appointments and doing you know making so many X millions and I go to lunch with them and they're like, Oh yeah, I just bought a villa in Tuscany. And that, you know, instead of saying, Oh, I wish I had that. I could yeah. say good for you. Next it's the comparison. Time. That that's the key. It's yeah. we do, we don't do it for ourselves. We do it to be justified in the eyes of others. And that's exactly. But yeah, if you took away the comparison and I looked at myself, wow. what a, and, and you know, that's the other thing when people say, well, Bejo, I'd love to have your job or your life, right? You, you've made it, they tell mm. me. Yeah. I think to myself, really? People look at me and say, I've made it. And they say, yeah, because you, you know, you, you, you've 
had been lead counsel on these cases. You said as exit arbitrator, you've got you know, all this stuff, you've got a reputation. And then, but you don't actually look at yourself and say, actually, you know what? It's pretty good. I, I, yeah. I, I should be happy with what I've got. Instead, you're always saying, again, what's next? What have mm-hmm. you done yeah. for me lately? Mm-hmm. Right? It's sort of the, the, the old uh, phrase. Um, so, so that success uh, post was very much about trying to re- reconfigure our psyche and our mind to, right. to accept the fact that maybe, you know, maybe life will give us a few lemons here and there. They do. Life does give us lemons here and there. But be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, the pro- but the problem is, you know what, Beiji, the thing is also, and, and I think, you know, it's true for all three of us and, and, and most of the people in this profession is we do spend, you know, the majority of our life working. And the majority of our day, the hours that we spend in the day working. Um, And so, you know, the things that excite us, that make us passionate, uh, that make us want to be better are work related. And so that's why you constantly strive for more. You're like, I want this, like you said, exit appointment. I want to get the title. I want more money, whatever it is. I want to be in that ranking. I want to have that villa, whatever it is. Mm. Um, If we spent less time obsessing about work and maybe be like, oh, I want to write a book or I want to play the violin or I want to learn how to make watches, which is my new husband's obsession. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Your Um, your husband's obsession, not your new husband's obsession. (laughs) (laughs) Unless there's something you haven't told them. Touche, touche. yeah, that's that's the thing, and so I, I think we we uh, in the field we're not encouraging people also to have additional interests or do other things to kind of keep the steam, you know, away from from these career achievements, which you you just you just mentioned yourself are never going to make us happy (laughs) we think we have this feeling of happiness and and again i'm here i'm referring to your avoid conditional career happiness post which i really this this one was i think my favorite which is you always condition your happiness to oh you know i'm sure if i if i make a partner then i'll be happy or if i get that case i'll be happy but it never happens yeah well I, i i tell you i've i've often thought about this one right because because I'm, I'm very lucky or unlucky, depending on how the, the listeners will take this, is that I have a very successful wife who is now head of arbitration at CMS. And I'm lucky because if I were to stop any sort of work today, we could pay the bills because Sarah has a fabulous job and is, and is super successful and will, uh, I'm sure, continue to be a great success. So I could literally stop Right. And I'll say, you know what? I'm going to look after the kids. I'm going to tend to the garden. I'm going to, right, do all the, all the fun things I wanted to do. Would I be content with that? And the answer is no. Okay. So, so even though I could do that, I'm not going to do that. Then, so that tells me that I actually like to work fine. So then the question I have for myself is do I want to go back to a sort of a big law environment having come out of it where, you know, you have the, the the internal politics, the leverage, the pressure, that sort of bureaucracy. And the answer to that is probably no as well. Um, and so what I'm really looking for, and, and maybe you could say, Beji, you can look at this at this point of your life, and that's probably true. Um, but what I'm looking for is a balance. But I have to say, I wish I'd found this earlier to say to myself, 
actually, it doesn't matter at what level you are, but life is always about balance, right? In other words, so I think I think I, ha I had in my mind, I have to say, let, let me say this on the conditional happiness, because I think it's all in, inextricably intertwined. I had in my mind that I would have to work really, really hard, like crazy hard and be miserable for 20 years. And then I will be happy because then I will have a reputation. Then I will have lots of clients. Then I'll have lots of work. And then I'll pick it like almost like you reach a point where you could kind of do what you want. But in order to, to get to that point, you have to suffer for a number of years in order to get to that point. There's an element of truth to that, but I don't think it's absolutely completely true. I think you should be looking for happiness, whether you're a first year, a fifth year, or a junior partner or a senior partner. I think you should try and find balance and happiness in everything you do at every stage. That idea that you have to go through suffering in order to later in life be happy. You know, people do that with retirement. One day I will be happy sitting in my rocking chair looking over my view of you know of my garden or the sea right and that's what you're aiming for and right now i have to be unhappy in order to get to that happiness i think that's where we get it wrong and and it is it it it's it's put in us by our parents it's put in us by society and most of all i have to say by ourselves which is which is the worst of all and that's what i've been fighting against for i i would guess i guess the last few years is the idea that unless i'm unless i'm absolutely smashing it you know and front page and you know rocking all the the, the latest stuff and being appointed to this and being appointed to that unless i do that i'm i'm a failure right i'm mm -hmm. not i'm not successful why can't i just be happy right and then i keep asking myself that but it's a constant battle it, it's really not easy I'm going to take this offline and, and propose making a, one of those rip-off calendars so every day or every week you can give yourself a pep talk with this mentor series. Um, it's really great. But I think we need to uh, wrap up. Thank you so much for this. And it's such food for thought. And we encourage everyone to go on LinkedIn and, and follow. You're almost at influencer status on LinkedIn. <laughs> so yeah, don't, don't give me that because then I have to <laughs> Then I have to start learning. Then you'll need more and more. And more. Oh, then I need to learn to dance. Oh, yeah. Every real influence and dance. <laughs> you need to have a TikTok dance. I need no, to have a should, TikTok dance. For the most traditional of us, could you please, and that's a plea coming from me, could you please turn it into a book? Yes, I am. I have to <laughs> I'm working on that. I, I'm, going, I'm, I'm Amazing. going to turn it into a book. Um, I'm working, but what I want to do just, just very quickly, what I want to do is, um, you know, in, in other words, look, I, I, a book is, a book is great. And I want to sort of put it out in a, in a nice format, but I'd like to do it in a way that, um, you know, I've been very blessed with my career, but I'd like to work with a charity, um, so that it sort of links with the charity that so actually the profits from the book can go to a charity. Oh, great. Um, yeah. Like a mental health awareness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or, or that's something great. that's close to my heart. Um, yeah. To do with children or something like that. So, you know, that way I feel, you know, I, I have to say, I, I'm going to come on to a pro bono one on my mentoring series because I, I really would love more to give back. Um, so it's my it's my little way of trying to give back. But I, I will do it, Sadia. And thank, thank you for it. Thank you for it. Great. I will definitely do it. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Beiju. That was great. Thank you. Thank you, guys.
Okay, my dear uh, future leaders of arbitration, I will open this segment by doing something that will make it seem like I haven't prepared, like a lazy middle schooler, but I have prepared. <laughs> so, so bear with me. <clears throat> the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines civility as civilized conduct, especially courtesy, politeness. My questions for you to put in your pockets, maybe for the end of this segment, are these. Do we need more civility, as defined in the dictionary, in international arbitration? And if so, should we somehow regulate the need for more civility? And the questions I am asking, I am asking because of the ICA task force on standards of practice in international arbitration. This task force was established quote, with the purpose of promoting minimum civility standards within the international arbitration community and providing practitioners with an official set of guidelines on the subject. So these are intended to serve as guiding principles of civility in our field. And they also say in their intro to the, to the guidelines that they are intended to reflect the many cultures and situations in which international arbitration is used. And they've used... Um, a task force with members from all over the world uh, and many diverse jurisdictions and backgrounds in general to ensure that these guidelines reflect a broad consensus in our community when it comes to the expected civility of all participants. And this uh, task force document, the guidelines, I think I will refer to them as the guidelines, can be downloaded from the ICA website, which I really recommend that uh, listeners do. Before jumping into the substance of what the guidelines actually say, I just wanted to address, by way of background, what is this document? What, what are we talking about? What kind of document is it? I think you already have uh, an instinctive sense, Brian and Salia, because you are experienced. You're even future leaders in this world, so you are used to, to guidelines <laughs> being employed this way. In my understanding, this is one example of these helpful soft law instruments that we see from time to time in arbitration. Um, this is, as I said, uh, the result of a diverse task force. This is something that happens a lot. Yeah, when um, smart, experienced people uh, come together and work for an extended period of time to develop guidelines, which are intended to codify and or inspire development in a sub-area of arbitration law. The most well-known are perhaps the, the various IBA guidelines on uh, conflict of interest or the taking of evidence. These kinds of documents, they have no intrinsic legal value of their own. It's not law, it's not arbitration rules, etc. But they can be included by reference in arbitrations, typically in procedural orders, where the tribunal and or the parties say that they will be either bound by these guidelines, which is of course a possibility, or more frequently, I think, inspired by or take into account or whatnot thereby, by reference, making them part of, of a live case. And I think this is the way we should think about these guidelines as well. They are not hard law. They are intended to be used and relied upon, but also to sort of move the goalpost of the discussion a little bit. And the introduction to these guidelines state that the guidelines were inspired by concerns, quote, that there have been repeated examples in international arbitration practice of conduct that falls below minimum civility standards and that the arbitration community should take action in response, end quote. So this is not 
at least according to the authors, a, a solution in search of a problem, so, so to speak, but rather something that is in response to something that is perceived to be an actual problem. There is a perceived need for this kind of, of uh, instrument or document. There are four sections. If we turn to the guidelines, and I'll go through them briefly and ask you guys a few questions as well. Mm-hmm. First, we have the general guidelines for all participants in international arbitration. That is council arbitrators, staff of institutions, secretaries, witnesses, experts, court reporters, interpreters, translators, etc., etc. The second section is specifically for party representatives, council. The third is guidelines for arbitrators. And the fourth is guidelines for other participants. And already here, I think we see an important point because unlike other already existing standards, and I think typically of national bar association rules and, and the ethical obligations you can, you can find in, in the bar association rules, uh, th- those rules are generally... Uh, or I should say they are exclusively intended for counsel. Mm -hmm. But these guidelines are intended to apply to all participants in the arbitral process defined broadly, which is very useful and something to keep in mind as we go through them. The first section, the general guidelines for all participants, these are sort of the first principles of sorts, which also naturally means that they are very broad. We do have The first principle, all participants shall act with integrity, respect, and civility vis-a-vis other participants in the arbitral process. Then we have that all respect all forms of diversity and cultural backgrounds and refrain from any form of discriminatory conduct. The need for respect for cost efficiency, confidentiality, conflicts of interest, etc., etc., so far, any objections? <laughs> Sorry, I was just going to interfere. Um, is there a definition of civility? I just gave you one from the Merriam-Webster dictionary. <laughs> no, but in, in, those, <laughs> in, in those guidelines, because, okay, the reason why I'm asking you this, and I'm sure you know this, Joel, is the term civility was also discussed a few weeks ago at Vienna when they were discussing the draft code um, for adjudicators um, in ISDS. And there was a conversation exactly on that point on how do you define civility? Is that going to take into account the cultural differences, diversity, et cetera, et cetera. And then I forgot which delegation it was, but there was a specific reference made to uh, the ECA standards of practice um, as well. Mm -hmm who was faced with this, um, with this question. So uh, it, it lasts for a couple, like, I don't know, half hour or so. There was a, a big discussion on this, on whether or not we should include the term civility because it might be interpreted differently from different point, points of view. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, no. And the answer, I think, is no, unfortunately. I think it's in the nature of this kind of document that it has to be a bit lofty and aspirational and devoid mm-hmm. of precise examples. There are, there, there's commentary. Each of these sort of... Uh, generally formulated rules is accompanied by uh, an explanation from the task force, mm-hmm. but it's not, you know, it's usually using synonyms, you know, <laughs> civility mm-hmm. it comes together with integrity, honesty, candor, courtesy, uh, things like that, which yeah. basically is just a circular, you know, we, we're back to this problem. <laughs> what does that mean in any given? Be nice. Yes, exactly. Be, be nice be to other nice. <laughs> But it also says that it's the purpose is to facilitate the administration of justice. Um, 
and assist in the resolution of conflict by agreement. So I think there is at least an aim toward, it's not just, you know, be nice as a human, but also be nice towards uh, the aim of the proper administration of justice. Mm -hmm. That is true. That is the overarching uh, goal, I guess. There's also in this general guidelines, there's one interesting point that I think is, is often forgotten in this field, which is that all participants shall ensure that those individuals under their supervision follow the standards or practice in these guidelines. So it puts an onus on partners who have associates or associates for that matter, who may supervise trainees, etc., Mm-hmm. as well as arbitrators who may have secretary assistants or institutional counsel where there might be a hierarchy at this institution, et cetera, to, to really ensure that the senior members in all of these contexts are responsible for those working under them as well, which I think was refreshing to see that that is spelled out explicitly as a standard of its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if we move to the second section specifically for counsel, it says that party representatives shall act cooperatively with one another and the arbitral tribunal. In doing so, party representatives shall use all reasonable efforts to comply with the tribunal's directions. And they list other examples of cooperation, such as punctuality, mm. which is my favorite virtue. In I the was world. gonna the say only, culturally that I'm gonna yeah. <laughs> culturally that's uh that's weird, you know? Asking uh you know, for example, someone oh, I'm not gonna cite the the you know the cultural <laughs> the people I'm thinking about. Well, I can I can say you know we as as um, okay I'm I'm French, but as some people know, I'm originally from Pakistan. When we say 2 p.m., it's you know it could be 4 p.m. So <laughs> yeah, but, but, but this this, this might be an example of where punctuality is a universal value, and you can't blame like you can't show up at 4 p.m. to a hearing scheduled at 2 p.m. <laughs> That's and true. When there are like just, 30 participants in different times. Yeah, That's I right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, responsiveness, accommodations for language, cultural and religious differences, as well as for different time zones, respect for the schedules of others, granting reasonable uh, schedule accommodations at the request of the other party, if doing so does not prejudice the rights of a party. We have a lot of examples here that are a bit more concrete than just saying civility. Maybe this addresses some of your uh, your questions, Alia. Mm-hmm. These are more concrete. Yeah. And I sometimes get the impression, both in general discussions such as this and in actual live cases, that some advocates are of the opinion that successful advocacy requires zealous tactics and an almost aggressive Mm-hmm. posturing really and in my experience that is rarely successful and i think this first guideline for counsel that i just read out is a great confirmation of that and mm-hmm. the fact that that is not the desirable behavior but i don't know how you feel you're obviously in a much better position to comment on this yeah i mean the the obvious counterpoint is zealous advocacy but i think um to do it within the confines of like you know integrity is is really important and i i think we've we all see it um, it rarely comes from the client, him, his or herself or itself that um, they want you to be filing crazy claims or um, like innovative theories or um, interim measures or, you know, anything that you can find usually comes from counsel itself. So I think it is interesting and that usually raises costs and it usually obstructs the proper administration of justice. Um in, in the broader sense. So I think, I think it is 
obviously necessary to zealously advocate for your client. We are bound by ethical rules to zealously advocate for our client. But um, I think there is some temperament that needs to be exercised that is not necessarily existent in the current administration of arbitration. Yeah. Also, I think it's very important to get along well with the other side's lawyers. You know, I mean, yes, we're defending the opposite sides of an argument, but you don't have to have personal attacks mm-hmm. on the other side's lawyers' advocacy style or, you know, what they have advanced or whatnot. And oftentimes, you know, you see it becomes during a hearing, it becomes a battle of egos, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, there, there's personal attacks going on and that, uh, and I'm sure Joel, you're much better placed to, to, to assess this. But when I, I used to be secretary for an arbitrator um, a while ago, and that, that would piss the arbitrators off. They do not like that mm-hmm. at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I am not sure it's ever been successful. I, I get the sense that it you know, feels like you're arguing for a jury more than for three senior arbitrators. But I guess the problem is also it's not the jury. It, it might be for your client, which goes to to Brian's point sometimes that mm. you have an obligation to your client. I'm actually interesting interested because I don't and I don't act in this capacity obviously myself that much. <laughs> so I'm curious curious about your your take on this where where you have a client. I should say just as background, the the guidelines specifically also say as a rule that. Council should not engage without legitimate reasons in activities intended to obstruct, delay, or disrupt the arbitration process or to jeopardize the finality of any award. Guerrilla tactics. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Maybe we'll get back to this during happy fun yeah. time. What if you ha- have a client that expressly or implicitly instructs council to delay or disrupt as much as possible for strategic reasons? How do you weigh your obligations towards the civility of the process against your obligations? towards your client and its instructions? Hmm. Good question. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think if it comes from a client instruction, I think it's, it's much different. But if you just put yourself in the, in, the, in the seat of respondent and say, because I'm respondent, I'm now going to extract the proceedings at mm. all costs. I don't, think that, I don't think that's necessary if it comes from your own volition as counsel. But if it does come from a client um, maybe there's a reason why they need to delay because they need to restructure their company or they're, you know, they need to figure something out in order to perhaps engage in settlement negotiations and therefore they want to delay or seek an extension so that they can have settlement negotiations if there is some reasonable purpose for it other than, all right, let's drain them of their money and hopefully they just go away. Um, I, d- I don't know if that's, um, I think that becomes the gray area. Yeah. And also if, even if you have an instruction from client, like directly telling you this, like you're saying, Joel, which, which just, which can happen, but it's not often like that. Um, your job as, as counsel is also to tell them, well, you know, it might not be, uh, really well received from arbitrators. If you keep, um, again, to take that, you know, legal expression, pissing the arbitrators off, you know, Um, and this is often what happens if you obstruct, you say obstruction, you know, obstruction of proceedings, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in happy fun times. There are multiple examples of that, mm-hmm. um, that are, have nothing to do with, you know, the legal, uh, you know, um, le- your, the legal threshold of your, you know, the, of your argument on the merits or it's just procedural stuff. Um, and, and that's, that's not in the interest of your client. So I, I would say that if, 
if I had a client, <laughs> I'm going to lose some clients <laughs> that would tell me to do something that's not in their interest. Uh, in the end game, what you want is is really, you know, to to win the case or to defend your case properly. Then you shouldn't act that way. Yeah, I don't know. Are we back. gonna Are we gonna discuss about like punishments or possible punishments? Or yes, very okay. soon. Then very I won't. Soon. Speak, okay, great. I won't speak out of turn. <laughs> we get back to that. Let me just run through the other two main sections. We then have the guidelines for arbitrators, which is also, I think, non-controversial first principles that arbitrators shall address all participants in a courteous and impartial manner and not employ hostile, demeaning, or humiliating terms. <laughs> arbitrators shall ensure that all participants in international arbitration conduct themselves in a courteous and respectful manner. And I think this is where we get to this sort of enforcement because the guidelines recognize that it is for the tribunal to make sure that the process uh, is civil. That's their job. They should also act efficiently, et cetera, et cetera. And then we have a short section at the end about other participants, such as expert and fact witnesses and people such as myself, like tribunal secretaries, basically extending some of the, the obligations from the other parts of the guidelines to ex- expert and fact witnesses that they shouldn't you know, knowingly make false submissions. And if they do, they should correct themselves as promptly as possible. And tribunal secretaries and institutional staff involved in a particular arbitration shall address all participants also in an impartial and courteous manner. But that's a good point, Brian. And I think that's something we ought to address. And that, that is the sanctions part. What can you do about it? Specifically, what can you do as a tribunal? That's not in the guidelines. So I think that's up to no. participants like us to, to figure out. Yeah, and I think coming from just doing a domestic litigation and seeing how adverse cost orders um, are assessed after every application even, um, I think is actually quite effective. And it's a deterrent factor in when you're thinking of raising an objection or making an application before a tribunal or before a judge, that you really do think about the potential that costs could be awarded against you. And in you know English courts and other courts that are based off the English law systems, you see very prevalently the issuance of adver- or the ordering of adverse costs, and um, and it happens constantly throughout the proceedings, and it it does it does really help. And I think it, you do think about whether you're going to object to an application, whether that would affect your adverse cost order, and it really it really becomes a a deterrent, I, I think. And we know, and we've discussed this on the podcast, that tribunals are more reticent to issue adverse cost orders and they split the baby and it's 50-50. And because you know that tribunals are so wary of affecting this cost shifting, that you do take more liberties in objecting to things or making applications that you may not that you know may not be successful. Um, and maybe perhaps that could be something that can be considered. Um, if you are to violate these types of guidelines. Yeah, this is a great point and one that Michele Potesta, who was one of the drafters of the these guidelines, uh, he was on a webinar that I attended. It was in Hamburg, but it was remote, obviously. So it was a re- remote Hamburg webinar. And he, he spoke about the guidelines. And I think on a question from the audience, this point came up and he basically said, well, you just said, Ryan, which is that even if there are no enforcement mechanisms in the guidelines themselves, the the fact that the tribunals may refer to the guidelines in a procedural order, thereby making them part of the procedure, might make the arbitrators more comfortable rendering 
cost decisions because then you it's not you exercising your own discretion uh, necessarily where you are but not in, in a vacuum it is you referring to the document that contains rules that we have all as participants agreed will be part of this proceeding and if for some reason someone does something contrary to those rules you have something concrete to refer back to in your cost order and i think the cost order is basically the the teeth that we do have access to here that's what we're working with yeah absolutely let me then return back to the and wrap things up to my original question um is this a problem i guess we will talk about this when we talk about guerrilla tactics the the very name guerrilla tactics would imply that there are problems but also do we need to regulate this is there a need for this because you can easily raise the argument i think that what's in these guidelines that's something that should be there anyway this is inherent and implicit in the arbitral process and by regulating it do we just point something out that is already you know supposed to be the rule well that's what law is right it regulates what should be the rule <laughs> you need to be <laughs> refer to some and, and exactly for the reason you just mentioned it's like the iba rules right i mean when you refer to them and you include them in procedural order then the tribunal can refer to them and um and it's much easier to make decisions when you can anchor you know your cost decision or any other decision or adverse inferences or anything on a text uh rather than just on what your discretionary powers <laughs> give you the right to do um so i would say yes to answer clearly i think there is a need for regulation especially since uh because of this our international element to it we all are subject our understanding of what is okay and not okay is not the same uh and you know again it's very cliche but you talk to an american prosecutor and a french traditional lawyer they will not behave the same way in front of an arbitrator and they will not also feel the same way about um what is okay and not okay yeah and i think Joel, I, you you bring up a good point about putting it in a procedural order saying you're inspired by these rules and it gives the tribunal something to refer to other than um all right everyone calm down or um the all what we see is the only thing people refer to without these this type of guideline is oh it's affecting our due process right i mean there's all these like alarm bells that people raise that are much more egregious than what's actually happening and and so to be able to put your finger on something a bit more uh accurate on on the behavior of counsel or the behavior of a particular party i think would be useful and it really is up to and i know that one of the arbitrator the guidelines for arbitrators is to to act efficiently or ensure efficiency in the proceedings that it is on the onus of the tribunal to be a bit more hands on in in regulating this type of thing and to avoid any runaway case and to kind of you know make sure you're answering applications you know under at a reasonable time and putting proper procedures in place when these interim uh issues arise i think is really up to the tribunal to do um Brian you you just quoted Taylor Swift do you realize that what did i say <laughs> you need to calm down <laughs> you need to calm yawn put that in put that in <laughs> All right, three thumbs up from the arbitration station for the ICA task force on standards of practice in international arbitration. Yes, well done. A, yes. And, and shout you. out to uh, Mr. M- Miguel Potesta, doing brilliant work. Big fan. Great. Perfect. Happy fun time. <laughs>
Well, Jules started with a definition from a dictionary. I think it is only fair that we talk about what gorilla, gorilla, gorilla means. So it literally means <laughs> little war in Spanish. Guerrilla warfare has come to mean a form of irregular warfare and refers to conflicts in which a small group of combatants, including but not limited to armed civilians or irregulars, use tactics such as ambush, raids, and the element of surprise to harass a traditional army. <laughs> Now I'm going to let you transpose that in the international arbitration world. Um, What what do we mean, guys, by guerrilla tactics and arbitration? We just had a wonderful um, uh, presentation by Joel on the ICA guidelines and what we should do, what we should not do. What are the examples of guerrilla tactics is what we're going to talk about. Because at least in my practice, I can tell you that I see them all the time, mm -hmm. all the time. Either I am accused of using them and then I'm like, no, this is not a guerrilla tactic. Or I'm on the other side and I'm like, um, sorry, this is totally guerrilla tactic and, and so on and so forth. So we talk about it all the time. Um, I We don't have, it's a podcast, it's not a video thing yet, but I do have actually just to vis visualize types of guerrilla tactics because I was giving that talk earlier um, in another setting. Had like um, a slide with all the different stages of arbitration, right? So it it starts with the request for arbitration, then constitution of the arbitral tribunal, then filing of submissions, then a hearing, then the award, and then the enforcement of the award. And throughout those phases, beginning, middle, and in between, you have those guerrilla tactics. So let's brainstorm, guys. I'm filing a request for arbitration. I'm claimant, your respondent. And again, I want to stress one thing. It's not necessarily just an investment arbitration, right? This happens in commercial arbitrations and litigation all the time. What can you do if you want a guerrilla tactic, me, <laughs> right from the minute <laughs> when I filed the request for arbitration? Think creatively. Uh, besides like a... Just anything, go on. One thing that comes to your mind. Well, they have these, you know, these new like preliminary dismissals of cases based on, um, you know, manifest without manifestly without legal merit or these types of applications like, you know, in the litigation setting, like no case to answer or, um, you know, failure summary to dismissal, summary dismissal. You're exactly. too, you're thinking too legal. I was thinking something even more practical. Oh, you're avoiding service. Yes. <laughs> I was thinking responding yeah. in a language that is not the same language as the submission <laughs> you received. That happens. <laughs> that is happening. Yeah, that happened to me too, of course. <laughs> But refusing service creates all those kinds of problems, right? Because then you're um, also other things that I've witnessed. And I, again, I, I don't want to query as to whether it was guerrilla tactic or real issue that had happened. But um A respondent is represented by two different counsel. And so you're getting conflicting instructions from the other side as to how to proceed, typically like on the arbitrary, you know, constitution of the tribunal or things you need to agree on in the early stage. What what do you do then? Like what <laughs> you just it just delays the whole thing, right? Because if one of the lawyers says, No, 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 I'm the right lawyer, and if you don't listen to us, then 
we're going to challenge the award because you're not taking into consideration our views and then the other lawyer who's representing the other entity from the same says the same thing yeah wow. the same thing what do you do what do you do you know so this, are, this happens more often than you would think the first time it happened to me i was horrified and just refusal of service um also going and that's a classical thing uh there's no arbitration clause what are you talking mm. about there's no mm. consent i've never consented to this so much so that i'm going to seek an anti arbitration injunction from my very anti arbitration um supportive oh, yeah. local courts <laughs> oh yeah there you go and at no this stage you don't have a tribunal in place so there's there's no one to complain to or to refer to it's just counsel fighting in a vacuum mhm especially if it's ad hoc arbitration right. which we had a guest recently <laughs> said ad hoc was amazing so that was just a I got so a- much feedback on that by the way several people <laughs> like oh why why are you why are you allowing this to go on with no critical questions everyone knows institutional arbitration is superior but i've consistently said that we have been praising institutional arbitration for years so it's only fair that we had james on to defend yes. ad hoc yes exactly and to um to everyone questioning our critical ability we have none we just let people talk <laughs> yeah. that's what we do this is a forum for discussion <laughs> Um, right. So, um, yeah, so guerrilla tactics, we were talking about tribunal right now. Um, just, you know, challenging an arbitrator in itself is not a guerrilla tactic, but it's often used as a guerrilla tactic. Or the entire tribunal, as the case. Or, or the, the secretary. <laughs> yeah. Or the secretary. Or counsel. Yeah, because, but why also, right? I mean, because, and we talked about this in the previous segment, Procedural rules are such, for example, under ICSID, if you challenge an arbitrator, the procedure is automatically suspended. Right. So we were talking about, you know, buying time and blocking the procedure and delaying and it has its effect. (laughs) Yeah, the desired effect of stalling. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. What is the most outrageous thing, Brian, that you've seen? Well, I, I see a lot of it in the document production phase. Um, mm-hmm. You see not only in the back and forth and the Redford schedules and the kind of like blanket objections that council doesn't even desire to repeat in the printed form and just refers up to previous objections based on things. Right. And it's clear why they're objecting to it because they don't want to have to venture into for, or, you know, like... Um, responding to these things both both in providing the amount of documents that need to be provided in order to do that but also the content of those documents um info dumping you know if you do if you are ordered to produce then you produce the entire archive and and it's not in chronological order Mm -hmm. it's not numbered it's not organized it's not produced in like a readable format you can't search it um and then you're dealing with you know, a, an insane amount of work in order to be able to sift through all those documents. I wonder um, if we were to pinpoint one jurisdiction, I wonder which jurisdiction we can all fault for this kind of behavior and why it is so prevalent. Which domestic jurisdiction does this come from, this type of info dumping, document production? The United States of America. Oh, yeah. Uh, like seen, This is a fishing expedition, which is the most American terminology that's been used in arbitration. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, which isn't necessarily a, I mean, obviously there's other verbiage that's used in the RBA guidelines, but um, you, you see that stuff all the time. And then you see incomplete production. You see, um, I had a, a case where you had to produce communications between the party representatives involved and the how they produced the communication was incomplete um, because there's different media that can be produced or exchanged during communication, like videos or documents that are produced within the communication that were not themselves produced independently. So you have an unclear picture. Um, you really don't have the option or like, you know, it's, it's quite difficult in arbitration versus litigation to seek further document production once yeah. if you found that's something a good point i mean this typically in arbitration happens without the direct supervision of the tribunal as well you have several rounds back and forth between counsel and then it gets to the tribunal you know whatever is an outstanding remaining request or requests typical plural mm. then it gets to the tribunal but before that there's like a few months typically of counsel going back and forth and arguing with each other before they put it before an independent adjudicator to determine, which I think also sort of opens up for this kind of tactic. And often you fight about whether or not we can have a document production phase even before at the time mm -hmm. of discussion of the terms of reference and, you know, whether you want a document production stage at, if imagine there's a bifurcation, do you need one during the jurisdictional phase and the merits phase, to what extent, how much time you're going to have to respond, so on and so forth. So this is even before the whole stuff has started. Mm -hmm. um, and talking about documents, there's also this no surprise rule often that you find in terms of reference, right? So that's, you're not supposed to, I mean, you are actually, let's say positively, you should introduce documents or things that you're supposed to use like um, beforehand, um, like at least 48 hours before or something before the hearing. But that's something else than the surprise of having new crucial evidence <laughs> land on your lap. Uh, literally, like, you know, just a day or even a week before a hearing, it's mm -hmm. it's, it's hugely destabilizing. Damages, yeah. this is where it usually happens yeah. as well, where you have an expert report, you, know, you change one little input uh, for the purposes of the presentation at the hearing, and that affects the calculation. And is that new evidence? Or is that just, you know, playing around with things mm. we have already introduced on the record? That's very common. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's also stuff that is criminal that happens like um, threatening witnesses mm -hmm. uh, you know putting them in jail or threatening arbitrators actually that's also one of the things uh, that I've seen happen so that happens often in again uh, certain kinds of jurisdiction where you accuse um, a member of the tribunal or the entire tribunal of being corrupt or biased and uh, which can uh, lead to criminal charges in the said jurisdiction. Now, the effect of that, um, in addition to be completely <laughs> mortifying, I think, for the arbitrators, um, is that they, so that has happened in one of my cases, they had to move the seat of the, at least the location of the hearing, not the seat, but the location of the hearing because the hearing was supposed to happen in the same place where they were sued uh, <laughs> for oh, wow. bribery or whatever. So you, they can't, you know, it's too risky for them to keep going uh, because if that happens during the proceedings, then of course it has a natural impact on the tribunal's ability to continue um, its mission. Yeah, say. that's closer okay. to the literal definition of guerrilla 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it happens often in our cases, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy. Um, Perhaps a, le- a less sexy or um, ex- not exciting, because it's not exciting to be subject to criminal proceedings. But um, the the fact that arbitration is based on party autonomy, and also, you know, the agreement of the parties, the tribunal will always proceed if there's an agreement of the parties. And there's a lot of steps that are put in by an arbitral tribunal and the procedural orders or however they conduct the proceedings, which is ripe for guerrilla tactics, i.e. an agreed chronology, an agreed uh, timetable, mm-hmm. uh, agreed procedural orders. And you just see, you literally see when I see it and I, I start freaking out and it's like, we'd like to have an agreed memorandum or an agreed list of issues. And I just become so deflated because I'm like, here we go. Here comes a huge fight over nonsensical <laughs> things because we're not going to agree. And I, I yeah. you know, and one party starts drafting the chronology and then they send it to you and you see like how biased the way they've presented the case is. Yeah. And then you have to insert yourself. And then you're obviously the pendulum swings the other way. Cause, and it's just this seeking party agreement on um, such major things like a chronology becomes almost a futile exercise. Yeah. Yeah, what's the point? We're not going to agree. That's our job. <laughs> yeah. And then we you get a chronology not. of like four dates because that's the yeah. only thing that's like. And it's, and it's useless. Exactly. And we fight oh, on the qualification of the events too, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just, you know, what we put in, what we leave out. Is that I want to think better of you guys sitting on the tribunal side. That could be, it could be genuinely helpful if such a chronology with agreed key events could be agreed upon. Never happened, Jules. Have you seen it? <laughs> it happen? is helpful, of course. It's helpful for the tribunal, and that's why they ask for it. But it's just literally like putting. It would a also grenade. be helpful for the arbitrators that the parties settle the case, <laughs> <laughs> right. agree on the issues and liability. Exactly. I, I would. I would like to think that, unlike that complicated exercise of settling, it should be possible to agree that you know meeting X took place on date Y without adding anything about who was present or what was said and all the disputed facts, just like just the facts, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. undisputed facts, shouldn't that be relatively uncontroversial? But I guess that's maybe <laughs> not. But this is the civility point and, and her rant is that this should not be a fight and this should not be your opportunity to bash the door in on opposing counsel. And you should, if you're, if you know, you're going to have to agree on these chronology and you're not dealing, we're dealing with sophisticated counsel here. This is not some like monkey court where we're all just like flailing our hands in the air, trying to figure out how to handle this case. We know how to do this. We know what the other side's going to object to. Bring a a neutral version of the facts that the parties can agree on, so that you can kind of proceed with the trial, the hearing preparation, so that you don't have to deal with this stuff. But unfortunately, that's that's where civility really becomes compromised because people take any opportunity to get an upper hand. Or and I, I'm sorry, have you ever heard of a case being like, well, counsel agreed on the agreed chronology, and therefore you basically <laughs> waived your rights on all of the major yeah. issues in this case? Like uh, that doesn't yeah. happen. <laughs> So why are we fighting over it? It's- no, but then it does become like the basis of, you know, you, you know, arbitrators do like to have like a document they can rely on and refer to. And the agreed chronology is often that document. So even if you, you know, reserve your rights and whatever, and it's, I don't know, it's just um, in terms of risk, I'm not saying that's what I do. I'm just saying in terms of risk analysis, I understand that a lawyer would just oppose to it, to the exercise, and would just be like, no, I've got my chronology, take it yeah. or leave it. Yeah. 
and then you and end up submitting to chronologies and then the exactly like, okay. exactly Thanks. or comment on then the their... tribunal secretary <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna say has to reconcile job them. <laughs> gets, uh, complicated well that's what it looks like and a greek chronology is often like a chronology drafted by party a with comments by party b right. with a lot of things that parties don't agree on so then what's the point of that exercise it becomes a submission in and of itself because yeah. you're, you're f- framing your questions and you're yeah i mean if you're on a, a very simple contract analysis like the amount of when it was agreed what they agreed to you're going to put in a bunch of chronology in the beginning to show the intent of the parties and kind of like where the person's mindset was leading up to the drafting of the contract and then you're basically advocating within the chronology to show, look at all these negotiations that happened before, and therefore this should have become part of the contract. And, and the other side will see that as, as a clear tactic um, of, of framing the question. But I, mm-hmm. I see these constantly, and I, it's just fights, 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 mm-hmm. fights, fights. And as disputes lawyers, aren't you guys exhausted? You it's, literally it's you sit down every day and you're like, I now have to fight. For this. For yeah. this. I had a case where we fought to have screens to project uh, something that was a while ago, but still, you know, the other side didn't want us to have any screens to project documents for uh, the tribunal. They were just like, well, they've got the documents. There's no need to like have extra screens or so on and so forth because it was an extra cost and we were trying to find agreement on this. So needless to say, we had, I don't know how many exchanges of correspondence on this two weeks before the hearing. Like, dudes, like we need to focus on the actual stuff. That's the thing. Another one also (laughs) that we did mention is failure to pay deposits and or advance on costs. Of course. Of course. Because you, believe it or not, no one can oblige you to pay your share of the cost of arbitration, especially if you are, um, especially when you're in defense, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're contesting to the whole procedure itself, especially if you're contesting jurisdiction. Um, and that can become a problem, a big problem, because, well, the other side, the claimant has to pay the share of the other side. And this is uh, not, you know, inexpensive. Um, well, and I can see the um, obviously the argument that they should have to pay the advance on costs for the claim that they are bringing. But then we get into the nitty gritty of like who's paying for the hearing venue, who's mm-hmm. paying for the transcriber, exactly. who's paying for the interpreters. Mm-hmm. And you're just constantly saying we're not paying. We don't, you know. No, exactly. You pay. We don't care. You pay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, a new kind of guerrilla tactic that emerged after COVID. Of course. Remote hearings versus exactly. (laughs) Interestingly, always when you it's always defend or respondent that opposes to a virtual hearing. Um, In my experience, it's been like that. I don't know if claimant has said no. I I don't want to move ahead with a virtual hearing because it's complicated or so on and so forth. It's costly. I wonder if this will be a factor as we have more in person or more remote hearings as opposed to in person, even in the future, and if that will be a factor. In choosing arbitrators, because I think some arbitrators are more comfortable with remote hearings than mm-hmm. others, and their their stated preference, uh, whether or not that will factor, because I think this is a, a battleground. Mm-hmm. I think the mayor, the major like difficulty that I've had when I did uh, virtual hearings is cross. It's mm. it's complicated for cross um, cross examination of witnesses or experts. Um, other than that. Um, <laughs> 
Time zones is complex, right, Joel? You had to battle with some of that. Yeah, I've had a lot. And I can understand your perspective on cross because it's a witness that you don't control that may be in Mm -hmm. some strange place in the world. You don't know what they have in front of them. You don't know what their internet speed is like. There are so many things beyond your control where you just Mm -hmm. want to be in the room and uh, in total control of the Mm -hmm. situation. And you can't if it's remote. Also, I had a question here. It's really a question. Don't you think that uh, when you are in a virtual setting, so like for now, like right now, um, you don't behave the same way as if you were in real life. And so I feel like lawyers are maybe not as civil as if they were if they were in a courtroom or you know a, a proper like tribunal uh, arbitration center. This is this whole element of symbolically it's it's you know you enter a big hall and there are other people and you're all dressed the same way you all carry yourself the same way you talk a certain way when you're in front of your screen it's just you just don't behave the same way (laughs) just not yeah yeah i think there's research on this we may even do a on this talk to someone who studied this because i I think there's systematic differences that may influence the the nature of the procedure Mm mm-hmm yeah, I, if you're, it's the hiding behind the keyboard. It's, you know, that's why there's right. internet trolls because everyone, yeah, everyone's exactly. really brave when they're behind their screen. And then when you like face them face to face and you're like, you going to lie to me now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, can you repeat that? I don't think I heard that properly. Yeah, I know. It's, uh... Well, I think we're, are we done? With... Yes, I think I'm seeing some, some approval here. Um, I think we've, we've used our time on this very interesting and important topic of guerrilla tactics. Thank you, Sadia. This has been a great episode. Thank you. And a great honor for me to do it together with these future leaders. Of, of oh, come on. How many times like have you drinking, it, Ryan? It's a drinking game. Yeah, right? it's like every time you hear future leader, you have to take, take a, a, shot. a shot. It's also funny because <laughs> I, I am the one, I'm naming the episodes. I'm going to name this. No. Oh, my God. Um, but yes, let this be a call to action to just observe your civility obligations. And thank you, Jan. Yeah, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.